It's also just got that classic, classic 80s asylum where you go in there and there's just a guy like, oh, my bricks are made of sponge pudding. And someone like, Jesus, 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 Jesus. We are wrapping up our cosmic horror series this week with 1986's film From Beyond. But before we start that, as of the next series for foreplay of four films that we will play, hence the joke of the name, uh, we are going to be going into 1980s vampire films. And we have selected four, and the order in which we will be watching them is The Hunger as the first film, Fright Night as the second, The Lost Boys as the third, and Near Dark as the fourth film. I am warning you guys right now, plan ahead about Near Dark, because despite the fact that it is directed by Catherine Bigelow, who's a very famous director who did The Hurt Locker, you cannot stream this movie currently. So you are up up to your own devices. I feel like we have a tech-savvy audience that might know how to watch some of these things. But just plan ahead because it may take a bit of effort more than usual because you can't just watch it on Netflix, rent it from Amazon. Um, in From Beyond's case, like today, you can watch that one for free on Pluto TV, which I found quite convenient. Um, but Near Dark is out of distribution right now, but it is actually a good movie and it is definitely worth watching. But we will be doing that last in the 1980s vampire series. So we will start that next week. If you guys want reminders about those, we do post it on the community tab of this YouTube channel with the week in the film we're going to be watching, as well as on Last Free Nation Culture social media, LFN Culture on Twitter, Last Free Nation Culture on everything else, Instagram, TikTok, etc., which you guys should follow because we're posting clips from this show there, and they are very funny and well edited, and you will enjoy them. So let's move into From Beyond, uh, directed by Stuart Gordon, who I was surprised to hear did Honey, I Shrunk the Kids later. So he had yeah. quite the pivot, quite the pivot. And a pivot back. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk about who this guy is, Richard? I mean, shit, yeah. I, I fuck it. So first of all, I mean, I, I I'm coming in loving this movie. This is like one of my all-time uh, favorites. I love Stuart Gordon. Um, Stuart Gordon as a director is like one of those, like he was, he's held up as like, you know, a master of horror um as someone who did a bunch of films most notably reanimator of course but basically he formed a collaboration with a producer called uh, brian yuzner and they made a bunch of films in the 80s and 90s uh and early noughties which basically heavily borrowed from the lovecraft ip this had some practical reasons obviously for copyright purposes uh lovecraft stories and and all of that stuff uh, all of his books all of his literature everything it all lapsed and it's all public domain so you don't have to go to somebody and purchase the ip rights but also stuart gordon he loved those Roger Corman movies, uh, you know, where he would adapt Edgar Allan Poe um, and use kind of Vincent Price as his muse. Um, so, you know, Stuart Gordon does Reanimator from Beyond, gets his big, like, Disney movie. He wrote the script for Honey, uh, I Shrunk the Kids. Um, you, He then does Robot Jocks, 90s classic. Uh, he did the remake of The Body Snatchers in 93. Um, I think that was a script, actually. I don't know if he directed that. It might have been Yuzna was the director. Uh, Castle Freak, 
another classic. Another good Lovecraft um, one. Yeah, another Lovecraft one. Day Gone, 2001, another another Lovecraft one. Um, and so he basically, you know, the, what what I love about the the Stuart Gordon Brian Yusner movies is that they literally had a crew that worked on almost all of these films together. You know, Jeffrey Combs is a leading man who I fucking love. I love that man. By the way, uh, um, I was really surprised to see Jeffrey Combs in this because uh, Richard and I have a shared love of Deep Space Nine. And yeah. this is, he is a very prominent and he's excellent in Deep Space Nine. Some of you probably have seen him as the alien Wayun, but also he played Brunt, which was one of the yes. Ferengi comedic characters. So he has had multiple parts in that show and he is really, really good in that. So when I he saw his name so pop good. up on this movie, I was like, holy moly, it's Wayun. He was so good in DS9, they actually wrote in the line about them cloning the Vorta so they could keep bringing him back because they killed him off. And then they changed it so this alien race were actually all clones so they could keep Jeffrey Combs in right until the end. Uh, but anyway, so you, you have Jeffrey Combs as a leading man, Barbara Crampton as a leading lady. Um, you have Brian Yuzner, who was the producer. He also directed a bunch of stuff. And you have, uh, what's his name? Richard Band, I think he's called, who does all of the scores for these films, including the brilliant ripoff of the Psycho theme for Reanimator. And it was really like a little family unit that used to go and make these like horror classics that were all Lovecraftian adaptations. So these films, they might not be... Uh, they might not be the the best in terms of like the practical effects that you see. Uh, that depends. That varies on who they used. Some of these practical effects in this movie were done by just the production team, and in it shows. But equally, the one thing you will get with the Stuart Gordon movie is he respects your time. These movies are eighty to ninety minutes at the outside. He get he has a particular way of doing things. He gives you a pre-title sequence, the titles. This shit's happening. And then you are just away. You are on a roller coaster. So even if you don't like the films, he hasn't wasted your time. Um, and yeah, generally you will like the films. I think the scripts are sharp, funny. I mean, he's just brilliant at what he does. And uh, big loss. He died. A few, he died a few years ago. Um, yeah, just like I, I mean, I, I just love his films. I really do. I think he's one great. of the things. I would say at the outset along these lines, I also enjoy all the Stuart Gordon movies which is referring to here. Like I, I, I would have had Dagon be one of mine suggesting because I know people haven't seen it, but if you like these ones, Castle Freak's another good one. Pit yeah. the Pendulum, these are all like, what I like is not only is there someone who has an affinity for Lovecraft, but he actually understands. Here's what's different about this in Event Horizon. When they're doing cheesy shit lines, that's just bad writing. When he's doing it, like Richard says, it's obviously intentionally tongue-in-cheek, the wit within these movies. This yes. is a great example here. Like, it's not just stupid. Look, what's clever is this. What this guy figured out was, to make anything Lovecraft-related, you're going to need an insane special effects budget, which he doesn't have. He has, like you're saying, but this was like theater level, some of the shit in this movie and some of the other ones he made like but he understands though 80s movies when they're about tech are allowed to be a bit hawky the idea holds it together essentially so i actually think the the era of when he made these movies 80s into the 90s is perfect like you can actually get away with the slightly dodgy like you know it's wiggly and slimy but you can sort of, like you can sort of let the suspension disbelief go on that one you don't have to like worry about it and because it's like that from the outset like this one really is just like weird fucking like bits of flesh like but yeah you don't go, oh my God, they're trying to be realistic and like scary. No, like the idea is it's it's putting it on the screen is enough in that sense. So to me, I think that works well. Also, it leans into the 80s cheese aspect. Like yeah. if you don't get it, 
Jeffrey Combs isn't a bad actor. He's not in an Ed Wood movie. He's doing that intentionally too. Like he really is the one that's running itself. <laughs> Edward, it's running itself. And then even the, the fuck, I forget the name of the actor who plays like the perverted doctor, the Pretarius or whatever. Like yeah. that guy kills it as well. It's like, no, I want to go further. See yeah. more. Of the, that's, that's a perfect Lovecraft evil doctor character. Can't you feel it? In the mind. The mind. It's out of control. You've got to turn it off. No. No. No, I want to see more. More than any man has ever seen. Because one thing I do appreciate, unlike if you watch the episode we said about Event Horizon is, they don't actually dare in that one to imply that people would want to open hell dimensions and access that. But to me, that is a classic Promethean archetype of a type of a doctor. And there's a reason why in the Lovecraftian world, it's not just people like being forced into these scenarios. Like, what the hell's going on? It's people questing it out, wanting to find this fucked up shit and submit to dark forces and contact it. In this case, I even think the premise is genius because the premise in this one, everyone can surely relate to this even if you've never had any supernatural experience in your life, surely in your life especially if you're a man, you have felt overwhelming sexual feeling towards someone that then changed how you thought about them or what, how you felt or whether you felt weird or you felt attracted or, like the classic one if you're a young man before you've maybe had experiences with girls is maybe there are girls that before you all became sexually awakened you actually found them to be a moron, nothing interesting about them, but when that dimension is turned on the light switch goes on, the something weird and alluring and simultaneously repulsive, but also, you know, this. So that aspect works really well in this movie because one of the things yeah. I think is cleverest in this one is, unlike an event horizon where halfway through it's like, well, what's going to happen now? The whole sexual dynamic makes this movie like twice as good. Like the idea that even the fucking, the female character, essentially, after like one go, she's just into it. Like, oh, fuck, bloody hell. Yeah. Really <laughs> and that, it becomes a compulsion. Yeah, that becomes interesting at that point in time. No, it's not just we're all trying to escape. It's like everyone has their own weird motivations and they're all being changed by it. I thought there was a lot to this movie. I, I gotta say I'm a fan of it as well. Right. Like, all right. Know. Let me let me explain the premise again first because we, we do have to start there because you might be wondering, well, what is this like weird sexual element to this movie? Uh, it does come from a very brief Lovecraft story, which I I, I read bef before we did this show. So I am familiar yeah, with the, the source material. Mm. Um, and it, it this obviously takes a lot of liberties with that, but it's because the, the, the short story is basically it's only about one character, which is Jeffrey Combs is Crawford Tillinghast in this. And it's a it's it's just a thought exercise, a very brief one by by Lovecraft. It's not one of his more long pieces like, you know, at the Mountains of Madness, which is very well fleshed out. The concept is basically there's a friend of Dr. Tillinghast. He gets invited over to see his crazy machine that sees ultraviolet effectively. So it bathes the room in this purple light. They see into another dimension that's being projected onto this one. They don't move because they, if they move, things can see them. And at the end, uh, Tilly Gas kind of dies while using the machine and his friend shoots the machine and the police don't believe him. It's very, very brief. Um, but they use that concept here and effectively they add more characters. They add this kind of weird sexual element to it. It is... Um, it is the, this Dr. Pretorius who creates this machine with all these crazy tuning forks that turns everything purple. It opens up the ability to see uh, into kind of a parallel dimension that's overlaid on top of ours. So the idea is that these flying eels and jellyfish and monsters are around us all the time. We just can't see or interact with them. 
it creates this field where you can. If you don't move within the field, they can't get you, basically. It's like the the T-Rex in Jurassic Park. Uh, and <laughs> then um, he he ends up, uh, Dr. Pretorius ends up dying, and then they think that uh, Jeffrey Combs' character, Crawford, kills him. They put him in a sanatorium because he sounds like he's schizophrenic. Enter Barbara Crampton's character as Dr. Catherine McMichaels, who's saying, let's run this experiment again. She's trying to be uh, empathetic towards the people in this sanat sanatorium, basically. And then at that point in time, they go back with a bodyguard, turn on the machine again. And that's where they start seeing Praetorius, who's turned into a blob Cronenberg flesh blob monster and is trying to basically compel them to continuously turn on the machine. The machine makes them really horny, which then causes them to want to turn on the machine more and more times. And they they struggle with their own compulsions. Anything you guys want to add to my very quick summary? Yeah, I think uh, as well, you know, what you, there's little, that, like the, the whole, it's not just sexuality. So Dr. Dr. Pretorius uh, is the original dude that everyone assumes is dead. And then he comes back. He's just, he's, his body is dead. He's just in the soup, the stupid, <laughs> sexy dimension. And, uh... and every time he comes back, it gets better and better and better. Cause they like, <laughs> yeah. sort of ramp up how ridiculous he's getting. Yeah. It's so good. And uh, anyway, like, you know, but, but it's, he, uh, there's a line in the movie where it goes like, he goes, he, that, that doctor was a sick freak. It's like Ken Forey from Dawn of the Dead. And uh, Jeffrey Combs goes, no, he was a genius. It's just that the five senses weren't enough for him. Your boss had some screws loose. He was a genius. It's just that the five senses weren't enough for him. He wanted more. And it's like, that is the premise at the heart of the, the it's part of the short that... story as well which is that yes yeah, yeah basically you know it's the it's the whole famous william blake the doors of perception are closed by these senses five concept uh that we are limited by our own sensory input and that there is a whole other scary cosmic horror aspect where we as you know evolutionary biological beings have not equipped on our world to see everything or perceive everything that is going on around us. And when we start to perceive these things or we invent technology or these things manifest to us from space or parallel dimensions, that's the terror. That's the horror that breaks your mind. Yeah. And I, I think that what's interesting is this movie is basically uh, there's a raft of movies in the mid to late 80s that all explore sexual compulsions sexual addictions through a variety of of lenses um you know i mean fatal attractions only like two years away from from this film uh which is you know some people see it as an aids allegory so you know like i i i did a bit of research on this, right? And basically, I think this the reason this movie's actually clever, cleverer than it gets a lot of credit for. Uh, and it's also wonderfully silly at the same time. Um, but in the 80s, in, in psychoanalytic literature, there's just suddenly, there's like a splurt, appropriately, of literature that covers sex addiction and hypersexuality. In like 78, you get the first use of the term addicting sexuality which is uh, by a, a psychoanalyst called Joyce McDougall. And then a, a, a PhD, uh, Patrick Carnes, he popularizes the term. Uh, and it actually was in the DSM-3. 
So the the handbook for you know diagnosing. Not uh, the still ago. in it or what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but and, and they talked a lot about it. And then but then by two thousand, uh, by the DSM four revi revised edition, it's removed. And there's a debate actually now. I was like googling. It's like super fascinating. There's a lot of like talk about maybe bringing it back as like an idea because terms like nymphomania and things like this and satirialysis or whatever the male equivalent is that's being they're being phased out they're considered quite archaic but now it's like you know there's a difference between you know like sex addiction and having like hypersexuality they're, they're considered two sort of different things now Stuart Gordon is like a super smart cat and Brian Yusner is obviously he's California there's no way they wouldn't have been aware of this stuff and there's a line in it that's just brilliant when uh, Barbara Crampton is sort of like, she's changed into a bondage gear <laughs> and she's interfering with Jeffrey Combs while he's asleep. Um, Ken Forey comes in and says, you might be a scientist lady, but right now you're acting like a junkie. <laughs> and it's so like, I, I think this, like I say, I think this film is actually talking about some pretty smart shit that people just look at it and think it's a silly, yeah. it's, you know, it's a silly, sexy <laughs> alien movie. I know this behavior. I've seen it in the streets. You may be a scientist, lady, but right now you're acting like a junkie. Oh, just take him and leave. You yeah, it definitely, I mean. it definitely makes you think uh, much more than a, the like Event Horizon does. You know, it, it's yes. you know, <laughs> Annihilation for all its flaws made you think. I think this movie is is intriguing because it toys with a lot of different concepts. So it's pretty explicit in the way that. Dr. McMichaels, who's studying schizophrenia, says perhaps schizophrenia and these mental disorders are actually just perceiving things in other dimensions and are not, you know, not a psychological disorder at all. These people just have extrasensory perceptions and they are describing a different reality, which, yeah. you know, that there's an intriguing concept for you. Uh, I think it talks a lot about repressed sexuality. Um, that ex that exists in people and that people are not, you know, perhaps aware of how it's interacting with their uh, higher level thinking. Right. And what that means societally. I think that, you know, this film also explores it does have that as we said like Cronenberg style body horror to it especially because a central part of it is some the pineal gland in the brain getting enlarging to the point where it be, pops out of the skull and becomes like a forehead penis uh so it's pretty deliberate in its like proboscis on like yeah. an animal <laughs> an animal, I mean. i'll show pineal gland today dickheads. <laughs> yeah, so it is it is great in that way but it is you know the idea of the pineal gland is that when it emerges from Jeffrey Combs's head and he's like the the mutated Dr. Praetorius he's saying it's so beautiful because he has now basically developed a new sensory organ to perceive things that he couldn't previously so beautiful now you can truly see what have you done to him I only awakened sleeping pineal land now why does this make him eat people's brains there's a mystery for you the, the symbolism may fall apart at a certain point in time because it gets rather silly 
Uh, but it is very deliberately silly. So I, I do what do you think the that. phrase "give me some brain" means? <laughs> yeah. To me, there's loads in this movie. Like, first of all, unlike all the others, which hint at it, or they're like sort of like this is real Lovecraft. Like, this is just full on. Like, you got the Mad Doctor who's questing after knowledge, sex, power, whatever. He's willing to go beyond, no matter what that cost is. And essentially, it's this one character that he like. There's no breaks on this motherfucker. He's just all gas, no <laughs> breaks the whole way, even when he's fully wrecked. Out in like sort of a half hybrid dune worms, like fuck. Oh, this is brilliant. Everyone's gonna come in. It's like nah, I'm not really buying it, but okay. <laughs> and also, like they try to tie in. Like first of all, there's another vein of movies that they did loads of, like this in the 80s and 90s, which are all about the idea of exploring out a dimension. Altered states is the classic one. Brainstorm, if people remember that one, the one where they're trying to film like what it would be like to die and see the pearly gates or whatever. Essentially, like, and by the way, if people don't know, Altered States was about the guy, John Lilly, who actually invented the flotation tank. And he was a guy who you can use a flotation tank anyway and have like sort of like dreamy, almost like a almost like a waking meditation, right? But what he would do is he would get into his flotation tank and have himself injected with strong doses of ketamine and then just essentially tell someone like just come and get me out in 15 minutes and he actually almost died because of this and basically he didn't just like do some experiments he wrote whole books where he's having like full extraplanetary like communications and like fucking all these insane experiences so basically that there was a vein of sci-fi movies like this so that character is very very actually like a, very much one you've seen on camera this guy who's willing to go far and beyond and so in this sense we're we're tasked with being the Jeffrey Combs character, aren't we? We're the tilling gas. We're the ones who are sort of like, whoa, don't go too far. Like, well, see a bit. And that's like the limiting factor. It's also just got that classic, classic 80s asylum where you go in there and there's just a guy like, oh, my prince are made of sponge pudding. And someone like, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And one guy's like, and one guy you know, furiously I, masturbating, just, Oh no! You have to even look at like, what's he what's he doing? What's he doing there? Like, I know, like every room is just the most obvious whacked out doodle, and you have no empathy for whatsoever. But that's also why it's genius because this woman. Then I also love that. By the way, this is like how hawky some of the actual like dialogue put together is. Like the Tilling Gas guy, remember, has now seen this terrifying vision twice, and he's almost been wrecked by it twice as well. And like almost everyone wrecked and raped in that. Like that. So he comes out and basically explains it. Well, obviously we can't ever do that again. And she's just like, no. Because my dad had fucking schizophrenia, you have to understand it. It didn't work out for him. And then they're just sort of like, oh, fair fucks in. Yeah, just go do it again. What? <laughs> what? That part's already just like, okay, yeah. I guess we're just going now. And then also you've got the whole thing where as soon as they introduce the African-American character, who doesn't even need to be in this movie, he's just, he's just the, the hired goon, essentially. When he just goes up and he goes, my name's Bubba. I'm already like pure black exploitation character. I love it. Yeah. Keep him in the movie. Keep him in the movie. <laughs> I'm Sergeant Buford Brown, but my teammates call me Bubba. I used to play pro football. We were all crazy. Because <laughs> his whole job, even when he's like cooking food for them, like fucking whatever it is, like look like fucking dumplings and mince or something. Yeah, it was. It was a stew. Yeah. <laughs> things just fucking. And anytime a character like him gets introduced, you already know they're going to get killed in a horrific way. Their job is just to basically be that one trope in 80s movies of like, yo, white guys are fucking crazy. What are you doing? Like, he's basically that guy. He's that guy. Like, why are y'all still here though? Like, yeah. He's right every time, by the way. He tells them all the time, leave, leave now. I don't. And that woman's using all whack ass lines like, no, to run an experiment, you have to do it twice. She's like, what? What are, you, what are you even talking about? But yeah, but that, that's actually so 
That's actually one of those things where it's like, I mean, listen, I, I definitely, you're right. It's a bit of an embarrassing 80s stereotype. The Ken Forey no, character. Explore. I do like it. Yeah, yeah, because obviously he's called Bobbery, plays football. You, <laughs> so you know what I mean? But, you know, a lot of great horror directors were very imbued with the sensibility. This is why horror is like a great genre. And I think people like who watch it from afar they look at it and they go oh it's exploited of, of women and then you know you, you interview the great scream queens and and they're like no it's actually super empowering like you know think about who freddy freddy's nemesis is who jason's ne various nemesis nemesis you know are it, it, very often you know they're about female empowerment and the same thing often is with the r racial component you know because uh, you know, Night of the Living Dead is so iconic in terms of what it did at that time with civil rights very much, you know, in in everyone's minds. To have a, you know, black protagonist that was right and the white people are losing their shit and if they just listened to him, it would have all been okay. Super powerful. I think a lot of horror directors do borrow from that. Now, yeah, there's some embarrassing stereotypical trappings around it that I think is just, some you know a relic of a bygone era but ultimately you're right like ken forey's character is right the whole time yeah. ken forey's character calls barbara crampton barbara crampton is a fucking you know like doctor and he's going you're a junkie like you're addicted to the sex machine you know <laughs> and he's the one who calls it and it's like you're right like if they just listen to ken forey <laughs> who by the way, he ends up running around in his budgie smugglers at the end, like beautiful ripped Ken Forey. Uh, but yeah, it's like, you know, I think he's there to basically be what we are at home. Like, stop turning on the machine. <laughs> stop turning it on. And they're just like, no, but if I just do it one more time, I'll have my yeah. finger right near the bottom. Like, <laughs> and so it was so well. That's why they are addicts. And by the way, I also love in this movie, people might miss this reference. They do a fucking doubting Thomas scene out of the Bible where he's like, is that really you? And then all he has to do is feel his weirdy fucking 80s figure. Oh, it's definitely him. Look, all oh, my hands all pressed into his shoulder. Like, I don't even really know what that's supposed to be aside from the doubting Thomas scene in the Bible. People don't know where. When Jesus appears in the upper room, Thomas is the one who has to like feel the wound. You know, oh, it is really. Or whatever. So there's that aspect, but I did think that was hilarious. Then obviously it has the iconic scene where later on in the movie, the Tilling Gas characters just doing like eating brains like it's so delicious though. Like that guys, again, that's not actually bad acting. They're doing that over the top. Yeah. They are trying to make I that mean, actually ridiculous. It's, it's just like it's it's oh, obvious. What, what eating, oh. It's obvious how over the top this is going to be just from the opening scene. Because yes. it's as soon as that woman goes like Bunny, oh my dog, Bunny's what I love. I, I, this is what I, as a kid, I, I used to make the mistake every pleb stand-up comedian does a mocking that. No, that's brilliant. I want to see what happens when that dog runs in the house. Yeah, I would. I wanted to keep a dog and leash you with it. I want stupid shit like that to happen. That well, it's just so funny forward. because it's like this 1980s Karen character who's yeah who, the, there's too much noise coming from their experiment in the house so she calls the police her dog runs in there then she's just trespassing in the creepy house and then the, the cops come up later it's just it's so campy and absurd and you just know what you're in for at that point in time and it hits all of the tropes you think it's going to hit right is it is it kind of low budget but weird effects are there some memorable i mean especially at the end by the time that the two basically like Pretorius and Crawford are fi skulls fighting in the same like fleshy soup body. It's a very memorable scene, even if it's kind of badly done. Is there just 
boobs for kind of no reason, right? As as she gets her shirt, her like nightgown ripped yeah. off. And yeah, then... but even that's well done though, because he doesn't just like molest her. He makes his hand bigger, like more more surface area. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, check this like, out, baby. Before yeah. he does it, the hand like <laughs> it, it's so fucked up. But, like, but there's there's a lot of there's a lot of talk like when people assess this movie. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know, I don't think I agree. But so, okay, in Reanimator, which again, same leading actors, Barbara Crampton uh, and Jeffrey Combs. Jeffrey Combs plays the mad scientist Herbert West, and there is a scene in that film which remains one of the maddest scenes ever put in any movie ever, where a talking severed head of his professor from the university that he's injected with the serum takes his own body to pick up his talking severed head and places it between her legs with the intention of performing cunnilingus on her while she's screaming tied to a medical slap. And this scene, I think is why Reanimator, I don't think it got rated initially. It was like too much. It, uh, ironically, I, I think in for Spain, when they advertised the movie, they put that on the poster, but whatever. Um, and so in 86, when they do From Beyond, they wanted to reverse the roles, and that's why Barbara Crampton's the mad scientist in this role, and Jeffrey Combs is kind of the victim uh, before he turns into the skinny dickhead monster. And a lot of people say, actually, you know, she's in charge of her sexuality in this movie. It's very empowering. She's the one who chooses to turn on the machine. She actually molests Jeffrey Combs in his sleep. So this is about, you know, women taking control of the sexuality. And I'm like, yeah, but she still gets fucked. She still gets a shirt ripped. She still has, you know, so I, I don't know. I don't know what you guys think about that, whether or not this is actually, because there's an interesting scene at the end where I think that's what they were going for. Because remember the very very prudish nurse, the nurse ratchet type character comes in at the end. And her job is to cure Jeffrey Combs by cutting off his skinny dick from his head. And she sees Barbara Crampton in the bondage gear and goes, look at how she's dressed. This is an outrage. You can't trust anything she says. And it's like the, prude, the, the feminine prudishness condemning feminine sexuality. So there is like a, I think they went for something, but it is hard to get past the fact that there is a, queasy pink space monster making his hand bigger to touch up Barbara Crampton. By the way, one thing I think will be very missed as well about this movie, it's actually one of those things where you almost need a primer if you're someone coming from the last 10, 15 years, because you have yeah. no idea how far cultural things have accelerated, some would even say too far. Like, if you don't get it, back then, the idea that not only does this guy not even just watch porn, he acts out his own porn, this Pretorius, and he's into S&M and just women full screaming as he's just inflicting that's a radical idea like that's not supposed to be like oh it's like we're just seeing what's on his browser like back then the idea is normal people watching movies aren't into that that would that would yep. be disturbing to them the idea of like bdsm like holy and shit. having a so bdsm them, dungeon with a vhs recorder in your house yeah, to, to them, that already is to show you like how far gone he essentially he is someone who's gone to the limits of the five senses there's nothing left for him except now to go into this like extra dimension so i feel like that will be lost on the modern viewer as well like that that would have that would already be considered like way beyond the pale i mean video drum i was going to bring up was, video drum yeah about this because it it's the, very similar in terms of the snuff films that are shown in video drum yeah. and that was like three years before um and it definitely i, I think it definitely informs this movie right yeah i mean i i think i love video drum um Same, but yeah, yeah it, it definitely was part of this era and i think you know there there was also 
more of because of the change in culture around this time in the 80s like you say there's more awareness of this but it's it's almost as if it's a just terror terror you know it's a terror for society at the time it's something that people are aware of enough that they understand what's going on in mainstream films but Mm. it's not big enough to be normalized yet so it still has this mystique and aura about it that doesn't exist today yeah, well, I mean, look, the the reason why you see it, because, again, horror is the ultimate genre to reflect a society's fears uh, for obvious reasons. And if you ever want to know where a society is politically, go look at the things they used to scare themselves with going right the way back to, like, even ancient cultures. You know, this is why it was, like, my special speciality at university. I was fascinated by this. Um, and obviously one of, the, one of the things people are afraid of in the 80s is transgressive sexuality, promiscuity, breaking down the family unit. It's a very real fear in American culture at this time. It informs so many films, many of which we're going to talk about. And again, when we get to the vampire movies, Lost Boys is all about that shit. I mean, so, um, with, with, as I said, with a very homosexual undercurrent, quite deliberately, as, as I called it on a previous episode, it, it, you know, it's, it's a landmark in gay cinema. But, you know, the, if you think about what's going on in the time in America, where, you know, Ronald Reagan and uh, what were they called? The... Um, were they like the traditional values coalition, the family yeah. values co- those Something guys? Like there, there was a very real fear that transgressive sexuality was going to start eroding the family unit. And so you start seeing it crop up in horror. I mean, Videodrome in 83 is basically a guy who is so loathsome and odious. He's going, he's out there looking for the worst shit he can find pre-internet, of course, which is what we all d- did when the internet come out, like, you know, Google it, oh, what's Mr. Hands up to, you know, all that stuff, right? And like, you know, it's, he was out there looking for fucking, you know, pirate TV channels and, and, and he stumbles on this thing called the Videodrome, which is the hardest thing ever. And it starts bleeding into his world. Does he have a tumor? He keeps engaging in risky behavior. There's lots of phallic imagery. And I, I think that definitely informs this movie. This movie, to me, uh, is definitely about transgressive sexuality. And I think Stuart Gordon's like a, definitely a liberal guy, but there is a little bit of prudishness in this. Like, don't go too far. It, no good comes of going too far into the hard sex stuff. And as Duncan rightly points out, in the 80s, hard sex stuff was putting on a, a leather basque and getting whipped a few times. <laughs> Ooh, stop me. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I think uh, I definitely think that's a sen- an accidental sensibility imbued in this film. By the way, what I actually feel bad for about Pretorius in this movie is he is the only character ever who would willingly have wanted to get the lament configuration from Hellraiser and actually go to that dimension. <laughs> but in the wrong fucking movie, yeah, yeah. That's actually the joke is you wouldn't even be tricked. You'd be going, this is a fucking brilliant. Like, you actually want to go to that dimension. I feel bad for you, mate. You're in the wrong yeah. movie. Yeah, also, speaking of the hell dimension, Richard, and your point about uh, it reflecting the fears of society, something we didn't bring up in Event Horizon was the satanic panic of the 90s and then going into the hell realm which is uh, i think also probably a part of what informed the the what was scary to culturally to people at the time when event horizon and and you will also notice of course a lot of those movies uh including event horizon 
what's your concept of hell? Everyone fucking and that. Hellraiser and all. It's it's so it's so interesting. I mean, Hellraiser deliberately because obviously Clive Barker was into that stuff. All that um, shit, yeah, yeah. And and he basically and, came from know, that world, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And in, in you know everything he wrote very early on, like Cabal and Hellraiser and you know, all of that's you know it, it's subtext but it but it's text but you know i i think with this film i think i think stuart gordon kind of accidentally because because imagine what it's like when you're working on a piece of art and this is why art can never exist in a vacuum you know you've got these external forces operating on you and he, you know he's a media savvy guy he wants to make a film they've already been embroiled in like a very you know minor controversy i want to say about reanimator which wasn't well received at the time and he comes into this film and, you know, I, I think they accidentally end up essentially making a condemnation of of transgressive sexuality. I don't know if it was intended because I, I think I think sometimes that can happen, like your intentions and what actually comes out or how it ages. But I could be reading it wrong. But that's my take on it. I think I think like certainly by the end of, of the movie, you know, Barbara Crampton is insane. So nobody learns anything from this. All we, there's no like, you know, Jeffrey Combs is dead. Ken Forey's dead. Pretorius is in the sexy dimension. Um, so what, what do we learn? Where's the growth? Nobody really grows. It's just this thing was bad. Well, don't ever turn that machine a, on again. Yeah, that's a, that's a classic H.P. Lovecraft trope, though, in many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is no, that no, no, everything, totally is, that, sure. everything is fucked. And somebody is now crazy and nobody believes them. It happens. It doesn't happen exactly at the end of the From Beyond short story because the thrust of it is the character says, I saw all this stuff. Now Crawford is dead and the cops mm. don't believe me, but I'm also not in jail because I shot the machine and not him. And he died of, of kind of horror, basically. Um, but it is people. A lot of Lovecraft is people then having to cope with their private traumas from what they've experienced because they either can't describe what happened to them or nobody can believe them because they had a singular experience that is not able to be replicated or shown to anyone else, which is what happens here. So I will say it yeah. isn't keeping in line with a lot of the themes that Lovecraft you know, places and, and also the cosmic horror genre, which is that you've you've pierced the veil and there's no going back and you can't you can't pierce the veil again. So you're just alone and fucked in your realization. There's also at the end, uh, there's also when they have the big square off before they go into the same body and fight each other as like little skull worms and uh, I fucking brilliant. <laughs> they, they, mate, this film's amazing. I fucking love it. Even saying those words, it's just so much joy. But when they have the fight, um, uh, Jeffrey Combs's character says to Dr. Pretorius, you impotent pig. Uh, and then and then and then says you can't make love. Yes, the greatest sensual pleasure there is is to know the desires of another mind. I know your desires, you impotent pink. We are the most powerful being in the universe. She'll know, Edward, how pathetic you are. How you can't make love. And notice he says you can't make love, you know, not you can't fuck, you can't get it up. There's an implied, you know, it's the battle between the meaningless, 
purely pleasurable sex in the stupid sexy pink dimension and what we're, and what the film is talking about which is sort of a meaningful coupling between you know a man and a woman in a relationship well, very traditional yeah you know very traditional you but, know preconceptions about sex that's what you but, know that's but, what but, I mean Praetorius it, also you know. says that there is something more intimate in than sex which is getting into another in, person's mind right and basically yeah. mind melding and becoming one creature with that person so in a way there is i think a it's not presented so black and white that this dimension is inherently bad because there is something that is higher than flesh in this other plane of existence right in many mm. ways praetorius despite being he looks like a flesh monster but that's because his appearance no longer matters what it is about him is about knowledge understanding perception um seeing something beyond the, the world that he comes from. I think what Dr. Pretorius is after, I don't think it's necessarily good or evil as many things in cosmic horror because he, in his, in his pursuit of, uh, of the woman, he is saying that there's something higher than sexual pleasure, which is that knowing someone's mind. And in the end, mm. he is actually on a quest for knowledge and additional perception beyond his experienced reality. And that is what he prizes most of all. And he is no longer concerned about his own flesh or his appearance. He's about transcending that and merging with people in order to get that deeper understanding. So you understand his motivations behind everything and not that he's even necessarily wrong because he's simply experiencing something transcendent that the other characters are not. Sure. But also, you know, I, it, it, again, this is what I mean about like, I don't know if they quite nailed what they were going for because there's also a bit where, where the first time he grips her and he, and does the big hand scene and he goes, if, if in a past, in a past form, I, yeah, I would have enjoyed you in a different way, and but still takes the time, and and so that the whole thing about the mind meld sort of does make it sound like more exploitative than oh, it's definitely rapey than yeah than than <laughs> sort of a, a kind of like there are things beyond the flesh that are you know nice. No, no, no. I, like, I mean, it's not that yeah. evolved in terms of a film, right? It is very. It's presented in a very campy way, and you. Mm. But the themes, I think are still there. It's just not executed as highbrow as perhaps I am implying. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, look, it, it's, it's a shame because this, this movie, I mean, this, this movie is the one that pretty much sets the tone for the rest of Stuart Gordon's career, unfortunately, because this movie didn't do well at the, at the box office, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, it was made on a super small budget. It's like a four and a half million dollar movie, and it only made just over a million back. Um, and this is what sets up, if you notice, he then starts, him and Brian Yusner start making these movies like abroad. Like I think Dagon was made in association with the Spanish production. Makes I think sense. Castle Freak was like French, French. In fact, I think this movie might have been shot in Italy. Um, and But it was the first one he had rated. They made cuts to appease the censors so it could get a box office release and it kind of bombed. And, you know, people... Um, uh, it, it was it was kind it was kind of weird because it bombed, but actually, critics liked this. Oh, film. It's a mega cult following, yeah. Yeah, critics liked this film at the time. Um, you know, uh, Gene Siskel 
uh, gave it three out of four stars, you know, and said it was a good uh, a good horror film that delivers uh, what audience uh, audiences have every reason to expect. Now, keep in mind, you know, these are the same people that gave a bad review of The Thing, you know, but they liked, <laughs> they, they, you know, they liked... They like this film. I think L.A. Times gave it a good review as well. Which is outrageous when you think about it mm. because The Thing just has aged incredibly well in basically yeah, all yeah. aspects, even the visual effects aspects. And I, I think it was probably the worst reviewed movie. Well, maybe Event Horizon was, but you know, among the worst reviewed movies. As you said in the last episode, Richard, what all of the other three movies, Annihilation, from beyond and event horizon have a 6.6 on imdb mm. yeah exactly and and look i i, I think uh, like real real talk i i mean i i adore this movie like I, I, I but i understand it is an acquired taste um you know i'll bring up you yeah. talked about the effects i think the effects definitely have aged poorly they didn't have any of their top guys for this for this film and i think it shows um like we i don't want to reveal and because me and Duncan want you to watch society just going in blind, so I can't really talk about what I want to talk about. But, but the the bottom line is, I think they it really lacked uh, from having a, a a kind of special effects expert because you can see that like if they'd had you know a, a, a Rob Patine or someone like that, how much better this movie would have would have held up over time. Because unfortunately, yeah, the effects aren't great uh and 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 that definitely hinders people liking the movie because it does just descend into like you know those sandworm looking monsters at the end are pretty bad <laughs> like they suck jeffrey combs hair off <laughs> but they give he, him a cool him... forehead penis so there's that yeah and and i know i see i like the forehead penis i think that's kind of cool <laughs> um but yeah so I, I i think that's one reason why people bounce off this movie but uh, technically there's so much good stuff going on I love the lighting in this movie. I think the way it's shot and the lighting. I actually think for a low budget movie in a in a house, in a once in one set essentially, where all of the scenes in this film pretty much take place in two rooms, I think this movie shot brilliantly. I think it looks really good. The lighting when they turn on the machine and everything goes pink. I think I think this movie looks like a, a, a amazing actually. I think Richard nailed it when he said at the beginning that Stuart Gordon doesn't waste your time in these movies. He mm. just makes it like a, a, it's like a snappy plot yeah, that gets to good. all the places it needs to go to, explores everything it can explore, doesn't explain too much, doesn't need to, explains as much no. as it needs to, get all the experiences. What I like about this movie is I like movies where they are ambitious and they actually go for it, but they don't just waste your time. It's not like four hours of that. Like, look at that, I'm swanking off on smart avant-garde art house shit. Like, like, I'll give you a random example of a movie. People know this reference, they'll understand what I mean. There's a movie called Time After Time, Monty, and it's a 70s movie where the sci-fi premise is H.G. Wells has to chase after Jack the Ripper through time in a time machine. Now, that sounds shit, doesn't it? No, that sounds amazing. What are you talking about? Hollywood movies don't get made about that. It has really famous actor Malcolm McDowell, a bunch of people you'll have known it. Like, that's not a great movie. I wouldn't tell people to watch that movie, but if someone makes a movie like that, I will watch it 100% because yeah. the premise sounds fucking insane. And how ambitious would it have to be 
Damien actually attempt to do that on camera, knowing all the failings of tech and the fact you don't have CGI and stuff. So I, that's why I like what about this movie in general. Like Richard's saying, he didn't make these Lovecraft movies because they made him loads of money and it was the hot thing on TikTok. It's the opposite. This is the side of Hollywood I love, where they're not doing it for a cynical focus group. In fact, they will never make any money off it and or it will tank their rep. But if they're true artisans, if they are like a David Lynch or John Irowski or someone, they go out there and they just try and find a patron who gives them the money for whatever reason that like you say, Richard says, he like they had other angles of like some tourism board will give you it for this if you feature the islands or whatever. Like whatever fucking thing they have to do to get the money, they do it just for the sake of actually putting on camera in crazy concepts like this. Like essentially all the ones me and Richard have referenced, all these Lovecraft related ones, go watch all of them basically. We're not going to be doing more of them now. We'll see if we ever do another future one. But mm. if you enjoyed this one, you're going to at least want to check out all of them. Because it's just the idea someone put them on camera, the actual things in these stories. So I think it's, it's out there. It's not an amazing movie. It's not only definitely worth a watch. If you can handle like the, the graphics, it's just a good movie. Yeah, yeah also, I mean, uh, uh, coming from uh, coming from the, the theater world where I really enjoyed being part of theater troops with uh, continuous collaborators through multiple productions. I mean, I, what I was reading is that what that's what goes on here to your point about, you know, Jeffrey, Jeffrey. Combs. Gordon's background was in theater. So yeah. yeah. Uh, but he tried with Barbara Crampton, with Jeffrey Combs to create a theater troupe environment where you cast the same actors in different roles in different movies. And to me, like if you just go and look up the premise of reanimating, you'll be like, how is that not a giant Hollywood movie now? Like, why, how would someone not take that premise and immediately make a movie? It's brilliant premise yeah. so but i just i like seeing um you know the evolution of collaborations and i haven't seen a lot of the later movies after this which i'm gonna go check out now because i find it interesting but it is a thread that you can follow and see the artistic development of the directors of the actors the way they use themselves in different movies and how effective that can be and you just in in theater this is quite common uh but in in film it is quite rare uh, to have this. Uh, and it's because theater is by its own, its very nature ephemeral. If you weren't there at the time in the theater, when it was happening, uh, it's just gone right now. And so it's very rare that we actually see these things cataloged over a period of time in film. And that makes it quite unique in my, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and, you know, look, there's a, you, you know, this, these are the types of movies that are always going to be, enjoyable because there's a there is a sense of bootstrapping in there there's no one that is bigger than the movie everyone's doing things like i i, I think basically when you sign up to a stuart gordon movie and look we can we can talk about you know yeah some of the stuff is a bit creepy and it hasn't aged well and some of the racial sensitivities aren't great by modern sense all of that stuff but the bottom line is when you sign up to a stuart gordon film as an actor you've got to be a good sport you've got to be willing to really <laughs> swing for the fences and do shit that might be outside your comfort zone and you know barbara crampton felt comfortable doing the stuff she did with stuart gordon and jeffrey combs feels comfortable i mean keep in mind again as i said he gets molested in this film in his sleep um and you know it's uh, this is like this is a small production there's there's stuff happening in in this movie where there isn't a guy on set going okay and i'm from the union and this is to make sure everyone feels protected and safe it's action let's fucking let's knock this scene out we got 30 days to film this movie yeah and, and this and, could be and, a and stage really, production too i mean yes, as to your point totally. richard like you know it takes place in very few locations 
And you could actually, I, I believe that you could put this on a theater stage and have it be pretty interesting. I was just talking about that as well. You know, the the the, the funny part is Reanimator did go on to get a musical ad, a musical theater adaptation, and I could imagine something similar with this, or just a, a you know a, a three act play uh, with this would would work very well. Um, you know, the thing that will always stand out in this movie for me is it is three, it is four fantastic performances. I mean, really, for, that, that it elevates the material. Like, Jeffrey Combs is so slept on as an actor, like, for real. I mean, he, he plays a totally different dude in this film, Reanimator. Um, and the lines, the delivery, like, he that delivery right at the start where he says, it bit off his head like a gingerbread man. Like, only Jeffrey Combs. Yeah, only Jeffrey Combs can do yeah. that and make you feel it, man. Bit off his head. Like a gingerbread man. Crawford. And Barbara Crampton is and so... Like, it's running itself. Yeah, oh, it's so... so it is, like, th those two actors are fantastic. They have great chemistry together. They did, a no you know, a number of films with each other. Ken Forey, I always fucking love Ken Forey. And I, and I, I, he gets just some of the lines of the movie. His death where he gets eaten by the little locust things and he's got those tiny bone arms. <laughs> and oh. they put his head through the floor, like a yeah. hole in the floor, and they just put his little... <laughs> it's just and, and again it's like everybody's got to know when they're out of the scene they know this is silly stuff but they don't they really go full send in every single scene in this movie and that's what holds it up that is what holds it up and, and just a note about dr pretorius as well the way he's revealed when he comes back from the dead and it's, it's awesome isn't it yeah. Yes. Again, it's what I mean about the lighting in this film. It's fucking great. Yes. But Ted Sorrell uh, is the dude, uh, you know, in um, what's it called? Uh, the episode of Deep Space Nine duet. With oh, the, yeah. With the, the he's the he's the he's the Cardassian dude. Yeah. Oh, um, right. So so which so, is also, by the way, duet is one of the best DS9 episodes. Yeah. Like Ted Ted Sorrell was like a, a slept on actor. I think he did like a bunch of like I don't know one of them like L.A. Law spinoffs or some shit. But anyway, he he. So everyone in this film is 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 elevating the material with with through performance. They are so so good. And like I say, if you don't fall in love with Jeffrey Combs after this film, if it's the first experience you have with him, I don't know what to tell you because this guy did everything. He goes bald. He puts a dick on his head. He gets molested in his sleep. He delivers some of the most campy, cheesy lines imaginable. He eats a fucking brain that looks disgusting. He's stucking people's brains out through the fucking eye socket by the end. Like, it is a full commitment to such a campy, uncomfortable premise. And yeah, I'd say, I, I, out of all of the movies we watched for this cosmic horror, this is legit one of my... this. I mean, the thing's the thing. It sits on an island by itself. But out of all the others, this is unquestionably my favorite. And I would say the best. The best. <laughs> in terms of intent to what it delivers. Uh, I think it's just very... What it says on the tin. Great movie. Uh, beyond the source material. So good. I, I think it does fall apart for me a little bit at the end. Because 
Praetorius's motives are are pretty one dimensional in a lot of ways, and I wish we would have seen more explanation behind because as Duncan's put it earlier, a lot of it was, oh, he's experienced the the limits of pleasure of the flesh, and now he's got to go beyond, and that, like it just kind of ends there. And then also the fact that he's sucking out people's brains that's never explained, Richard. And let's let's talk about how. Dr. McMichaels escapes the insane asylum and then rocks up with a bomb made out of dynamite. Where the fuck did she get that thing? And she just puts Listen, it on a five-minute timer. Come on, man. Like, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but a lot of the stuff that happens at the end of this movie is just bad. But that's Stuart Gordon. That's a Stuart Gordon movie. We gotta get to the end. We've got to we've gotta blow this machine up somehow. So it doesn't matter that she's a clinical psychiatrist. She's got a motherfucking time bomb. That's it. Just deal just deal with it. She just, just she escapes she escapes with nothing as she's committed to an insane asylum, steals the van she she was in earlier, and then for no reason rolls up and pulls out a timer attached to dynamite. Where the fuck did she get that? The difference with this movie using a deus ex machina like that compared to something like Event Horizon is From Beyond earns it. It earns the right to do it. <laughs> okay, Richard. <laughs> yeah, it does, 100%. <laughs> Event Horizon, it's like, it's like ah, oh, you know, it's all this build-up and they're trying to make it real and then they do something silly. This movie tells you exactly what's going on with the pre-credit sequence. Why, why was he eating people's bonkers. brains? Why was he eating people's the feet, brains? The fucking pineal gland. Yeah, that part wasn't as weird to me, Monty, because to be fair, like to me, that is tied into like, it is like tribes in Africa and the Amazon, etc., who were into like psychedelics, who also do believe shit like that if you yeah, eat if you people's eat brain, hearts or their brains, yeah, you get yeah, their absorb, soul or their power. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah that's famous actually, from the Aztecs sort of, as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of like a, an underlying theme I could sort of buy into because to me, the idea about that as well was that's an element we didn't discuss that much. Is obviously we can't really imagine what it's like to be the Praetorius character because he's already so alien with every reappearance of him coming in. But the joke is, you you are getting the sense of what it's like as the Jeffrey, whatever that guy's character name was, uh, the Tillingast guy. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and basically, the key thing with him is it's the idea that like this is one thing about Lovecraft that we've missed as well. It's that. Even though in Lovecraft, there is no like actual real like Christianity or God, but there are definitely these eldritch creatures and ancient ones and deep ones, and they do have very real power. Like it's not that the, even yeah. the followers are deluded. No, they are accessing something real. So they do have that scene, which now it just works as comedy. But you know, when they're trying to show off the tech and they show like when he sees like out, like and he looks, it's all like fucked up great computer graphics, like almost like Predator's vision mixed with just a basic <laughs> video camera. And he goes, it's so beautiful. And obviously Scanning. now it does look like a shit cutscene from like one of those CD ROM games point and click in the nineties and it like a fucking but it, and so that's actually just funny now because at the time they probably did be like look at these sick graphics but now you're just like yeah whatever it's just like you're looking around but yeah the idea that like essentially if you that's the thing I do like about the movie as well it justifies itself like if you really were gaining these alien powers and being changed even if you're this character that actually like sort of initially repelled it eventually. You would get overtaken like maybe then brain is the ultimate fucking superfood that power charges your pineal or whatever like at yeah. that point you've already gone beyond haven't you like there's no point fucking no point reeling it back in now and just chilling out is there like at that point i want him full on eating brains uh, and, and, and just as a little bit of trivia that there's nowhere else to fit into i because I, I i do think this 
score in this movie is mega, by the way. I, I think it's got a really good score as well. Uh, Richard Band, who did this and did the reanimated score and did all of the scores for, for Stuart Gordon and a bunch of other stuff. Um, he did Planescape Torment. Oh, he did, really? He did the, That's one of yeah, my favorite the, games ever. Yeah, he did the Planescape Torment score as well before achieving dubious mainstream success by doing one of the Stargate spin-offs. Um, okay. So he had like a mega career in terms of scoring. And I think the score is super effective in this film. Again, it's something that like when I was talking about Event Horizon and how it could have been elevated by having like some good musical instead of just the fucking violin sting every time there's a jump scare. It could have had some really good atmospheric music. I think what Richard Band is good at doing is tonally appropriate scores for what's going on. Uh, and yeah, I, I think I, I think this movie, like actually the score, it, it keeps it, it ratchets tension in a silly film. There is a little bit of tension before it descends into absolute silliness. Like I think when they're going into the house for the first time. And uh, somehow Jeffrey Combs just does a ninja vanish. <laughs> they, they, they literally flick oh, a yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's like it's like got... Bubba, you had one job. It was to watch <laughs> no. Jeffrey Combs, and they're like, "Where did he go?" go. <laughs> he just disappeared. It's like he stood right next to you, dude. Like, come on. But yeah, so but like it does ratchet up the tension a little bit. But obviously, once Pretorius is back, um, you know, it's uh, it, it it does get silly, but and, silly and, in a wonderful way. For all you know, we talked about how kind of bad the effects are, but I do think. The end effects, as we discussed, were quite good. I did not expect, mm. you know, after he, after Jeffrey Combs gets his head eaten, even though that happened to Praetorius and he came back yeah. in the other dimension, for him to kind of emerge from Praetorius's body and then then then, then Praetorius to emerge from his body and then with they his just, hair back and with his, and then they and then they fight in the in the yeah. primordial flesh soup as the two skull worms. That part was really well done, actually, and it was very surprising and super memorable. That's one thing I forgot to mention, actually. That was actually another, like, interpersonal thing they were trying to play on as a trope there. If you notice, from as soon as the female doctor, the McMichaels one, is there in the house experiencing the dimension and meeting Dr. Pretorius, there is, like, a weird fucked-up love triangle thing going on where, like, the yes. Tillinghast sort of the cock guy where he knows, like, oh, no, you're too good for him. Like, oh, you should be with me. And instead, she's just sort of like, but his power and what he's gaining. Uh, and there is just, there, there is, like, an element of that built into it and almost like the whole thing of like even the main guy the Pretorius guy is not just getting off on like being horrible to her. he's getting off look what I'm doing to her I'm fucking your bitch like it's there is some of that there's some of that under the surface there going on you know and Jeffrey Combs is the perfect actor to sort of play a, a, a pseudo cuckold that, that's the great thing about him because his physicality he's yeah. not a stud is he I mean like it's pretty remember? short we see Ken Forey, as I say, in a pair of budgie smugglers, nothing to the imagination, absolutely ripped. I mean, like, you know, just an incredible oh, physique on him. And when he has to pick up bald, bald post-worm Jeffrey Combs, and it's like he's carrying a fucking child in his arms. It's like, and, yeah. and, and Combs, even with his physical performance, he's deliberately bringing his shoulders in. He's like, there, like the Mekon with his arms. Ah, oh, man, the, like... Uh, I, I fucking love Jeffrey Combs. Like I, I just can't say it enough. Like what a what an absolute hero uh, he is to 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 the world of cinema. And you know, this with all the Stuart Gordon years in the movies he did, I you just 
saw like this dude has range like for real like i know everyone thinks of him as like the campy horror actor but like he really did a bunch of like movies that had you know broad range like even in ds9 like we talked about at the start two very different characters oh yeah uh you know and and, and a lot of people might miss because of the makeup that he is indeed the second one. You know? Yeah, I, I think he's absolutely amazing <clears throat> in DS9 because Brunt, as we talked about, is the comedic relief uh, Ferengi from the Central Command, right? And he's there to audit people a lot of the time. Mm. And he's very funny in that role. But as Yun, he is so servile to the yeah. founders and just this ridiculous yes I man. I love to serve. Yeah. <laughs> and this slimy, lying, manipulative diplomat. He's just wonderful in Deuce Phase 9. Yeah. I mean, he was in, uh, he's been in some good stuff. Do you remember his performance in The Frighteners where he plays the agent investigating it all with the like undercut, really fucked up, slicked hair? Yeah. You've seen The Frighteners, right? I haven't. I haven't. Oh, okay. I, uh, I'm sure Duncan has. Uh, it's like a super sl- another mad slept on film um, that like it was bu- it was by Peter Jackson. It was one of his first big kind of Hollywood uh, movies when he was coming out of you know what they call Oz Oz exploitation films. Yeah. And and uh, it's it's he's so good in that. I mean, and like this is a guy who like he's just been on the periphery. He's been in all these like great projects, but like never never like got the kind of recognition that he sort of deserves for like these incredible performances he turns in like a great physical actor actually like really like yeah i i, I don't i don't know dude i don't i don't know why this guy's has slept on his ears because i i think whenever he's on screen in this movie it's so compelling to watch yeah i mean really well, I think we should wrap up our thoughts on this. Yeah. And then also what will be important is because we're only doing four of these films. Now, we've mentioned a variety of other cosmic horror films over the course of these four episodes. But I think we should provide a list to people if they want to dive further into some other ones. So cool. as for as I really enjoyed uh, from beyond, I thought you, you guys really nailed it that. It's really fun to watch because it is ambitious, even though it didn't have the biggest budget and they really committed to it. The acting was quite good. It's highly memorable. I think the the theme of all four movies we've picked is that they they are kind of must watches for the genre, because even if they aren't always successful, they do. They are ambitious and they do try things and have very, very iconic moments in all of them. Yeah. Uh, Duncan, I know you've already recommended some good ones, uh, like In the Mouth of Madness, for example. Yeah, I mean, that's just a really good Lovecraft one. And that's Sam Neillin. So if you want a better version of Event Horizon, there's one. <laughs> some of these ones that are the Lovecraft ones, Dagon, I think, is a bag. It's better to know nothing going into that one. It'll yeah. surprise you. Castle Freak's a pretty cool one. Has a very unique sort of take. Essentially, it's Frankenstein-ish in what it does with some of the interesting parts of the character. Uh, I had one that I put on the list that I knew we'd never get to. But if you if you like movies like Hellraiser and this sort of an era of movie, there's one called Lord of Illusions. It's from the 90s that no one's seen. It's this one where there's a guy who's like a sort of magician cult figure and he's chasing after some sort of a Hellraiser. Like really, essentially, it blurs like the lines between horror and like sci-fi. That's a, that's a pretty out there one. Obviously, Hellraiser itself, we could easily have done the, the original. You don't have to watch any of the other ones or know any of the backstory. The original movie as a standalone is just a banger. Essentially, it's just a mega episode of The Twilight Zone or something. Yeah, for me, I would... I mean, The Lighthouse, fucking great. Love that film. Uh, 
the Matrix before the Matrix, Dark City, <laughs> beat for beat, they ripped that film off. Um, the Mist, yep. Frank Darabont, one of the best Stephen King adaptations. That's a very good movie, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Under the Skin, with Scarlett Johansson as an alien eating, luring men into sex and eating them. Okay. Very weird film. And Jacob's Ladder. Classic. One of the best body horror movies ever. Yeah. Um, we so, also, uh, on, our, on our short list of which we picked these four films, we also had uh, Sunshine, which was another Alex Garland yes. movie. Um, In the Mouth of Madness, which we've mentioned as well, another John Carpenter movie. And then one of the more recent ones we, we were discussing was Color Out of Space, which is a mm. uh, Nicolas Cage adaptation of the famous Lovecraft short story, which actually is a quite a good movie. Um, I really enjoyed that one recently. Yeah, uh, and I watched The Void as well. I watched that not that long ago, and uh, su very surprising, very visually good. I mean, I don't know if it's a good film, but uh, oh, also definitely alien. interesting visual and Alien. Yeah, Everyone's we, we didn't alien do now. we didn't do Alien because we figured that would be it's it's too mainstream, and probably we just assumed everybody had seen it. It's also been talked about to death, so. Didn't Imagine seem like... Jeffrey Combs in Alien. No, <laughs> that would be fucking great. Like He's John Hurt's character. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that's going to wrap up Cosmic Horror for us. Next week, we are going to start 1980s vampire movies kicking off mm. with The Hunger. So we'll see you then. Mm.